Hi, I'm Perry. And I'm Brooke, and this is Double Take. So on today's episode, we will discuss the 2020 census. And to do this, we will go back to the history of the census and the history of representation in the United States. And we will really explore how slavery and the Three-Fifths Compromise continues to haunt elections to this day and how the Trump administration is preparing for the 2020 census. We know the census sounds really boring. It seems as if it just produces data on American people and the economy. Well, that's true. But the implications that the data collects has on our government in everyday lives must not be overlooked. Who gets to be in power and who remains in power is a game of zip code politics. Through our discussion today, we hope to convey how important it is to change that. So first we want to start with what is the census? So the Census Bureau is one of the largest and most cumbersome departments in the federal government, and it's actually part of the Department of Commerce. And um, it's responsible each decade for counting the number of people residing in the United States, and it's important to indicate that it's people residing in the United States, so that means even people that are not citizens. Yeah, and basically what it does is collect statistics and demographic analysis just to see who's in this country, and it's a great way to to determine how to allocate resources, funding, taxes, um, congressional districts, districts, all of that, and it's so crucial that the census be accurate, and we'll get into this. And I think what's interesting to note is that the census has probably never been accurate, and I think Mm -hmm. today we have really great technology that it better helps us count people, but think about when it first started, you know, the census is inscribed in our constitution. Mm-hmm. It must have been wildly inaccurate back then. Yeah, with so many people dispersed around the country, exactly. especially when we were spreading westward. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's there's really, no way to count all those people. Yeah, yeah, even today when there's people in um, in very rural places, it's hard to count. And and this has to do overall all with how it's hard to count people and has to do with Um, The racism that exists in our country is that the census has been under fire since the 1960s for its use of ethnic labels and undercounting minorities. So I would just keep that in mind through the episode. Always keep in mind, and as we do, whenever we do research on something, to always keep in mind this ingrained racism that exists in our country. It's systemic, yeah. It's systemic, and even though today it may not be perceived as overt, it's it's really ingrained and internalized in our system, and... Through all of our podcasts, we hope that our listeners and that this really, theme is there. Yeah, yeah think yeah. of that theme. I think it's so important. So now, what we want to do now that um, we've kind of just given an overview of what the census does and its function in the United States, we want to go back to the colonial period. And actually, the first census in the colonies was in the Virginia's House of Burgesses in the first half of the 17th century. And basically, what it did was enumerate enumerate all people living in the Virginia colony. And, of course, Native Americans were excluded from that count because some people did not consider them people. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And colonial governments routinely took local census counts, especially in New England. Um, however, no official census was actually taken in the colonies. Yeah. And uh, maybe it was because of the lack of communication. It was a colonial era. There was yeah. not a lot of technology, sparse and scattered um, nation of people in the colonies. But it's just interesting to think back, even before our constitution, yeah. there we were still doing and, some governmental and also, things. And also that people identified the importance of counting people. Yeah. Like, even it's back then, it's always been important. It's always been important, yeah. Yeah. So, 
The first federal census took place in 1790, and you might be thinking to yourself, oh wait, but the Constitution yeah. was ratified in 1787. Well, they wanted to make the years um, in like very easy numbers, like yeah. by the 10. So uh, three years after the Constitution was ratified, they held the first census. And yeah. actually, as we said before, the census is mandated yeah. in the Constitution, Article 1, Section 2 of the Constitution. Yeah. And it wanted to establish a foundation for representative government. Yeah, so it's how people in Congress were elected, because we have congressional districts. Yeah. And uh, this essentially states how many people in Congress mm-hmm. each state gets. You know, the Senate, obviously, two senators per, per state, but it's up to the population based on how many Congress people. Yeah. And the federal government needed to know, or still needs to know, where the American population is concentrated, the gender and age range of the inhabitants. And also, and not even just that, but also, I mean, we're talking about representation, but also where to draw the lines, which Mm -hmm. is something that we are still struggling, struggling with today. Yeah. And so, and another thing we want to add, just in our historical analysis and um, of the census, is... The three-fifths compromise yeah. in, embedded in our constitution yeah. stating that in terms of counting, African-American slaves were counted as three-fifths of a person, and that yeah. was to gain an advantage for the South in yeah. representation in Congress. Yeah. Um, I think I remember learning this at a young age and mm-hmm. wondering why it was three-fifths, because yeah. that just seems like kind of a random fraction. But I, what I learned this year was that there was this theory that African Americans or black people or slaves in general completed three fifths the work mm-hmm. of a white person, and that I don't know how they those people who held that theory got that reaction, but that was the underlying thing of that number that's inscribed in our constitution. Yeah. So it's just always interesting to think about how this three fifths compromise continues to haunt our yeah. nation to this day. I mean, obviously, we don't. We that's no longer a mm-hmm. thing. But it still has a legacy that, you know, it really affects counting. So the legacy of the three-fifth clause extends past the Constitutional Convention and past um, the initial years of our um, country. And it basically ensured that the South had a majority and influence in the House of Representatives. And this created this sectional difference, and it wasn't just the South, it's People who pro-slavery. want pro-slavery, people who want to uphold the institution of slavery. So the three-fifths clause provided this pro-slavery yeah. advantage in the House of Representatives, and if you go all the way to 1820, it allowed for the passage of the Missouri Compromise, which brought Missouri as a slave state, the annexation mm-hmm. of Texas in 1845, which was a, a slavery empire, yeah, as it's called, and, and it allowed that to come to the nation as a slave state. The passage of the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, Kansas, Nebraska, the Kansas, Nebraska Act, which allowed um, uh, a slavery to be opened in the Great Plains and Rocky yeah. Mountains to, to territories of slavery. So, all of these laws, all of these acts that allowed for slavery to grow and expand in our country is all because of the how the Three-Fifths Compromise brought about an advantage for pro-slavery advocates. And in a sense, the Three-Fifths Compromise like, was a spark for the Civil War. Mm-hmm. Like, arguably, the, it would not have had to happen if Three-Fifths didn't give this platform for all these acts to be passed. And mm-hmm. Civil War was obviously one of the 
bloodiest, ugliest wars the United States has ever been a part of. Yeah. And and, yeah. and I actually, um, I was reading some census numbers from, you know, the initial years of yeah. our country. And if the three-fifths clause wasn't there and slaves were not um, counted as three-fifths a person, a state like Pennsylvania would yeah. outvote Virginia. Right. So it specifically helped people who, who um, supported slavery. Yeah, yeah. So now we want to talk about the current status of the upcoming 2020 census. Yeah. And it's actually considered to be one of the most high-risk departments. Yeah, and that's largely because it's underfunded, understaffed, ill-equipped. And it's also largely because there's a lack of a director because Trump has yet to appoint one. And that's super scary because it's, I mean, it's almost 2018. It's in two years. And the point of the census is it takes so long. It takes a decade, essentially, to mm-hmm. prepare. And I think what's interesting about the time we're living in now is that over the course from 2010 to 2020, there's so many new technologies mm-hmm. and advanced way of not even only not only just statistical analysis, but also just means of count, count, uh, like counting people, you know, through computers. And I, I read somewhere they want 50% of census respondents, which is essentially the American population plus more people, mm-hmm. to respond via computers. Mm. So that's a huge change from past years, which I think it's really interesting. Yeah. And also just going back to the, the director, I mean, this, as we said before, this is one of the most cumbersome yeah. departments and processes, processes that the American population goes through yeah. to count people and to have a representative democracy and it's so important and, it, and there's yeah. no current like permanent director um john thompson was the yeah, census bureau many. director but he abruptly um stepped down from his position in 2017 um under trump i think it was in may in 2017 yeah. and there's an acting um, director right now, um, his name is Ron um, Harmon, I think, or Jarman, I don't know how to pronounce his name, um, but he's the acting director, but there's no formalized yeah. director, permanent director, and you're talking about this, yeah. putting our representative democracy at stake. And it's definitely, it's, it's a problem of leadership, and I think that the census is really struggling with that right now, and it's interesting because on October 12th, just last month, mm-hmm. the Commerce Secretary, Wilbur Ross, mm-hmm. he appeared before the House Committee on Oversight and Government Reform, mm-hmm. and he requested $3.3 billion more in additional funding. But I also read that a lot of census advocates actually say that's not enough. Yeah, I know, it's still and not Congress enough. Congress is not but, providing and, uh, but also, enough. And, but also, Congress is still, they didn't necessarily grant, they didn't grant that money, mm-hmm. you know, and... But yet they need even more money than that. Yeah, and the whole idea behind the technologies that we were talking about, you yeah. know, setting that up costs apps, money. Well, that costs money, but it actually um, would ideally cut down costs yeah. um, because more you know, efficient, door to door, more efficient. Um, and the Trump, um, the the bureau under Trump actually promised to um, post uh, a list of the technologies mm-hmm. that they were coming out with, but they missed the deadline, and they've yeah. yet to even produce comment materials, and yeah. produce. Um, material saying this is what we're going to do. So there's this lack of planning, yeah. lack of awareness that there's this deadline coming up yeah. and you're putting how we are represented and how we allocate yeah. resources at stake. And 
I, I just think a major thing to take away from this is that the Trump administration and Congress actually mm-hmm. have overlooked the U.S. Census Bureau's financial needs. Mm-hmm. A- and that's scary considering how important it is to count people since historically the census is always undercounted. Mm-hmm. Um, hard to count populations, which are usually um, minority populations, yeah. including African American, African Americans, Asian Americans, la- the Latino community, and mm-hmm. just poor people in general. Yeah, and that's really doing a disservice. And those people that need the most amount of resources allocated mm-hmm. to them, and if you don't have the population counts, if you undercount those people, mm-hmm. there's no way enough resources, enough money, uh, and enough effort is going to go in towards those populations. That, mm-hmm. That's so scary to me. And when you undercount minority populations, it actually provides a benefit to the Republican Party yeah. because yeah. minorities are more likely to vote Democrats, so that allows for Republicans to gain additional seats in Congress. And the census uses these numbers to determine congressional redistricting. Yeah. And, and also because the Republicans then stay in power and then they're going to draw their maps to benefit them. Exactly. And, it's a cycle. I mean, and I'm not just saying that this because we're liberal and because we're Democrat. Like, it's not fair. It's not just. That's it's not, not representative de- democracy. This is not democracy. That, yeah. And that's this scary. Our, the very system of government mm-hmm. is under fire because yeah. of this lack of funding because of this high risk of failure that the Government Accountability Office has designated the 2020 census. Yeah, and just going off of the whole undercounting of minority populations, um, in the 2010 census, it was calculated that about um, that African Americans were undercounted by about 2.1%, Hispanics by about yeah. 1.5%, and Native Americans by almost 5%. And well overcounting whites by 1%. So, oh god, you're really privileging they, the power of white people yeah. over um over minorities even though if it if it's not um intentional. Yeah. You're you're truly representing white interest mm. over a minority interest. Yeah. yeah, and it's also it's it's a race issue, it's a an ethnic issue, but it's also a mon- it's a social class issue because mm-hmm as we talked about before, the underclass poor people. And it's this whole catering to this wealthy mm-hmm. donor class. Yes. And these people who are buying the, the elections. Mm-hmm. The census also not only affects how resources are allocated and congressional redistricting, but a lot to do with business and the economy. Mm-hmm. You know, the census really affects every single corner yeah. of America, and it determines where hundreds of billions of federal do- dollars are flown in. Businesses actually base where they open stores and um, based on cens- yeah based on the census. So people base their livelihoods yeah. based on the um, the statistics. Yeah, I read I read an article census. something about. Targets and how they know exactly mm. what to sell, partly because of the census data that they use, like try, try to cater to that local population. Because obviously, what they sell in Dallas, Texas, is not be the same as what they sell in Burlington, Vermont. Yeah, and another thing that I just thought of in terms of counting minority populations and 
what you said earlier, that the census doesn't just count residents and citizens of the United States, but it just counts people who are here yeah. that reside. So, and I thought about how Donald Trump is very hard on immigration, illegal yeah. immigration. The numbers are not going to be correct because yeah. the immigrants hiding. in this country are not going to, of course, like report to the government office. Here. Yeah. And Trump's fear tactics actually will create for an, a more inaccurate census. And I just think that's so interesting. And scary. And yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I, I just read that. In January, a leaked draft of an executive order was proposed um, directing the census to include a question of immigration status on the census wow. in 2020. So there, it shows that the Trump administration is doubling down, but this could create for an inaccurate census. And it also doesn't help that the census is also nervous about people who don't respond. Yeah, and that, that's a huge thing too. Yeah. I mean... Not only undercounting minority populations, but undercounting because people don't report. Yeah. That people don't respond to the census is also a And what's thing. scary about Trump's effect is it's it's making people who they feel are at risk of their citizenship or whatever, whatever, whatever reason, it's making them not want to respond. Mm-hmm. And something that has come into light in the past two days or so is that it, it was leaked that the Trump administration is leaning towards naming a man named Thomas, Thomas Brunel, a Texas professor, um, a political science professor at um, University of Texas, to be the director of the census. Mm-hmm. And I've been reading a lot about it and a lot of um, people who have worked um, in the census response, and it seems as though people are very worried about transferring from an academic setting to a political setting. Yeah. And also there's a lot of concerns with him he, he's very strongly Republican and has testified at many, um, you know, hearings about gerrymandering and has leaned towards Republicans at every turn. Yeah, and the census cannot afford to be partisan. In exactly, any way, and I, um, uh, a woman named Terry Ann Lawful, um, she was a former co-director of the Census Project, which is an organization that basically just tracks the census and tells um, people, you know, its status. She basically says... If he gets appointed, it's it's a it's a signal by the effort of an of this Trump administration to politicize the census, mm-hmm. and that's so deeply troubling. Yeah, because it, it, it's one of those examples of putting party and ideology before country. This is honestly the census, as we said before, affects every single corner of the United States. It cannot afford to be messed up in this way. I, I can't help but think, um, you know, the census is all about statistics, right? And yeah. data analysis. And, I mean, you can't mess with facts. Yeah. But I just can't help but thinking about, like, there the whole is. fake news and, like, you know... Um, we can't have the census be fake news. Exactly. And I, I just... I'm just worried that... And we're, 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 we'll get into this. Like, the effect... The true effects of the census. And... I'm just worried that if the data isn't accurate and there's partisanship, partisanship involved in the data collection, that we're in deep trouble. The census truly affects every single aspect of the United States. And this podcast would be hours and hours long <laughs> if we would have talk about every th- single thing it truly influenced. 
But today we're going to talk about um, two really important yeah. effects, and that is gerrymandering and resource allocation. So first we're going to talk about gerrymandering, and to do that we're going to go back in time a little bit and talk about landmark Supreme Court decisions that have influenced um, the, how we can legally gerrymander yeah. and the parameters of, of it, the and parameters of it, and who can be counted, and how and who can decide whether it's unconstitutional or not. So we're going to jump into this first case called Baker v. Card. It was decided by the Warren Court mm-hmm. in 1961, and honestly, I find this case one of the most interesting Supreme Court cases ever. And Warren Supreme, um, he was this, uh, the chief the, the chief justice. Um, at the time, he called it the most important case of his tenure. And he decided a lot of... He decided Brown versus Board of Education. He yeah. decided Miranda v. Arizona. He decided some major cases. Mm-hmm. Um, but he said that this was the most important. Um, and basically, this case said... It, it asked the question, who can decide whether a legislative map is constitutional because a lot of people don't believe that politics should enter the court's mm-hmm. realm. So basically the question of court the court faced was did the Supreme Court have jurisdiction over Could questions even of legislative apportionment? Could yeah. they even hear this case? Okay. So this is the whole story this case really has a story and I'd recommend listening to um more uh, more perfect podcast on this specific case Baker v Carr because it's it literally it very indirectly but it did cause like two justices death or re- resignation from the Supreme Court but anyways so basically what they said was they can hear this case and what Warren said which was so monumental is that the courts are the only institution that could decide such a partisan question as legislative districts. Mm-hmm. And I think this was such... A lot of people disagree with this decision and don't even think that gerrymandering should be... uh, These cases should be heard by the Supreme Court still. But I... We truly believe that they should because, you know, legislatures and people like that, they're all subject to political parties and, you know, the Supreme Court's supposed to be insulated from politics. But also, a lot of people's voting rights have been stripped and, you know, some our democracy is in bad health right now, meaning that the people that represent us are not necessarily the people that should be representing us. And I mean, people, by the will of the people. By the will of the people. And people like prisoners, they're stripped of their rights in many states. How are, why would elected officials cater and try to help prisoners in their state if they're not even being checked by those voters? Yeah, and it's all about... I feel like in this day and age that the courts are far less beholden to special interests than, say, congressmen. Yeah, exactly. So when I think of the Supreme Court, I put it at almost a higher level than even Mm -hmm. the president. Yeah. Because the courts, the the people who are Supreme Court justices... They're not elected. ...lifelong terms and are appointed. They're not worried about being re-elected. They're only beholden the Constitution of the United States. And I think that is so powerful. And technically, Congress and the President and the Executive Branch are, should be beholden to the Constitution. And their constituents. And their constituents. But the Supreme Court is solely beholden. They're 
their constituency is the Constitution. Now, and they interpret that document. But now, let's not, um, you know, oversimplify things. Yeah. The court has its corruptions. Oh, it has certainly. its partisanship. And we know that there are liberal justices and there are um, conservative justices. And also depending on their judicial method of interpretation, yeah. you know. Um, but getting back to the situation at hand, so it basically said the court can hear this. And this led to... Um, you know, minority voices, it allowed for minority voices in cities mm-hmm. to have an equal voice, majority white population living in the countryside. So it was this balancing act. And also a monumental thing about this case was it led to Reynolds v. Sims, which I believe was decided in 1963. And this case called the revolutionary one, one, man, one man, one or vote. One yeah. And this idea is central to America's foundation of popular sovereignty. Yeah, I mean, the whole idea that every single person in this country has a say in who gets elected is mm. basically what our country rests on. That's where a republic, that's our foundation. And yeah. and this case, it, it's, I almost think about, like, it's kind of ridiculous that they had to even say, say that. Yeah, but I think what's so important is that the court now saw malapportionment mm-hmm. as a fundamental flaw in our democracy, mm-hmm. and it required correction via the courts. But that case didn't correct everything. Far no, from far it. Far from it. Yeah. I mean, we have a case coming to the Supreme Court yeah, versus Whitford, which was just in heard Wisconsin. in Wisconsin, and it was just heard in October twenty seventeen, just last month. So we're still dealing with these issues, and especially, I mean, I'm, it's not just Republican, it's not just Democrat, yeah. but we are seeing a Republican effort to suppress voters and either crack or pack districts to advantage them. Yeah, and getting back to the census and why and its effect on it, you know, the census uses the, this data and this mm-hmm. map the, it collects to draw congressional maps. And, well, the, th- the whole thing is that every congressman... Um, in the House of Representatives, represents about 700,000 people. Yeah. But when you're not counting people, yeah. and you're undercounting, and you're not, you don't have an accurate census, that number means nothing. And that's not democracy. That's not democracy. And just what, I mean, and it gets super partisan when you talk about gerrymandering what's happening, but what's happening right now in many states, specifically Wisconsin, because of this case that's com- that just was heard at the Supreme Court, it's traditionally, the census is traditionally undercount diverse populations who have traditionally voted Democrat, as we said before, and this benefits Republican districts. And, you know, these Republicans remain in office, and they, the people in office, draw the maps, and it's this vicious cycle, and it doesn't stop unless the courts correct it. Yeah, and just for fun, I think um, what I like to do, just to really demonstrate how crazy gerrymandering is, you can Google the congressional um, districts of your state yeah. or any state. Look at Wisconsin right now because they're under fire. Yeah. And the lines are crazy. Yeah. That's it, like you you can't think oh they just randomly did that to yeah. fit you know just um as many people in each district equally. No, it was it was strategic and you know there's this whole idea of either cracking um districts cracking. and you know especially with minorities of republicans but, but dispersing but the courts have said it's a governmental interest to keep certain groups together yes. but but, but yeah. what what i'm saying is that a lot of um 
you know, people who draw the maps, let, um, who want to diminish the minority vote, will um, crack the districts and kind of put minority populations dispersed so it just dilutes their vote. vote. Mm -hmm. Or what they do is they pack and they'll put um, a lot of different minority communities in one so they only have one um, representative instead of take up more in, um, yeah. in you know, more representatives. So this idea of constantly trying to diminish minority representation mm -hmm. to advantage white interests or um, wealthy interests, mm -hmm. it's... It's really a disservice yeah. to democracy. Yeah. So bringing it back to the census, if we continue to undercount people and not count accurately the people who live in this country, the representative democracy of America will not function. Yeah. And it will allow for more gerrymandering. And if you think about what we discussed on the 2020 census... There's no director. Mm -hmm. There's underfunding. It's, it's so likely that the 2020 census will be highly inaccurate. Yeah, not to sound pessimistic, but it, it will be inaccurate in some way. It's always been. It's never going to be perfect, but, but it, it should be as close to perfect as possible. And also, it, it's not something that the census, it's not something that you can continually work on. Well, you can't. That's like the wrong way to put it, but the thing is, the census and the data that it holds is for a decennial it, thing. It's, it's ten, 10 years. years, so it will affect resource allocation. You know, apportionment of districts for ten whole years. We're not going to get a new census and new data until twenty thirty. We can't wait that long. And you know, I would just sit with the idea that the people in Congress do not truly represent. Yeah. Americans. And that, that doesn't, when you first learn that, it doesn't make sense because we're told for so long we that... We vote and, and we get and a representative. And it's the superiority complex that we as America have, that we have the best country, we have the best system of government. And while democracy might be amazing, it does not work in our country at this point. And it's up to us, it's up to citizen, citizen action groups and citizen engagement that will change the tide. It's not changing public opinion and then changing the courts. So the organization we're promoting for this episode is Fair Vote. And Fair Vote is a nonpartisan champion of electoral reforms that give voters greater choice, a stronger voice, and a representative democracy that works for all Americans. And Fair Vote has really uh, has a proven record since 1992 as a nonpartisan trailblazer that advances and wins bold electoral reforms at the local, state, and national level through strategic research, communications, and collaboration. And today, they are the driving force behind advancing ranked choice voting and multi-winner legislative districts that together will open up our elections to better choices, fair representation, and more civil campaigns. So go to fairvote.org to donate. So we next want to talk about how the census is going to affect resource allocation, and that really can have anything to do with taxes, Social Security, um, Medicare, Medicaid, anything like that. And it's a really big um, subject, and we're not going to hit all the points we want to, but just to give an overview, and just as something to keep in mind, the old census director, Thompson, he had to practically beg Congress for more money. The census is deeply underfunded, but 
it's not just for the census. It's how we distribute government resources and how the, to people who desperately need yeah, it. Yeah, that's right. And it's also how, using this data, it's how Congress establishes a budget for certain things. And if you undercount people, especially people living in rural areas in poverty, you're mm-hmm. not getting the resources they need to yeah. them. Um, using census data, it can be used to provide nationwide services from hospitals and transportations, schools, emergency services, hospitals, bridges, infrastructure. All of the things that hold up our society, you know, our census data is used to know how much money to allocate to those certain things. Mm -hmm. So one thing I want to discuss, I'm I don't, I don't want to get into too detail into everything, but more want to give an overview. But something that um, the census really affects is elderly people. Yeah. And finding out how many senior citizens live in a given community yeah. and help um, towns and cities provide programs and services to help these elderly citizens live in their homes independently um, that are required under the Older American Citizens Act. Yeah. And, this data is used to identify seniors who are eligible maybe for financial assistance, um, for utility bills, and something I think about, which we discussed previously, was how the census is trying to update um, their technology to maybe do an online forum. But think yeah. about how elderly people, maybe they don't know how to yeah. use those services. Um, and just something off this, I know this is a little bit of a tangent, but... Um, if you're using technology and online services to um, to give data to our census count, it could easily be hacked. And yeah, last year, um, Australia's yeah. census information was hacked, and that that created serious exactly. ramifications. So just you know, as we think about the whole Russia scandal going on, hacking yeah. our election, hacking the DNC, I also keep that in mind that you know this data is fundamental to the workings of our country yeah. and. It actually has a lot to do with the presidential election because yeah. it determines how many electoral votes go to each state. And if you're diminishing the yeah. minority vote in maybe some cities that have um, are in um, Democ- usually blue states, you know that could be a really big thing. If you know, say, um, a state loses a um, electoral vote. Yeah, I mean, so much of our lifestyle and the way we live our lives is dependent on census data. Um, but the thing is, not a lot of people know about it. And what's great is we've seen a lot of activism since Trump has been elected because he's mm-hmm. repealed so many things. We've seen a lot of marches concerning immigration, a lot of things concerning health care. And, mm-hmm. you know, it, we stopped that horrible health care bill. But I think something is like, let's, I can't wait to see a march about trying to fund the census. You know well, what I mean? Well, it's not really like this the, issue that's so easy to get it, behind and so complicated, yeah. which is... Which is something we like to do on our podcast is explore yeah. issues that aren't really necessarily making the on the headlines. forefront of yeah. But you know these issues may not like may I feel like the census is arguably more important than anything else um, in terms of just getting the getting our democracy to work. You yeah. Know? Um. So that was a little tangent, but um, but honestly, when it comes down to resource allocation. The most vulnerable people, people in our society, you know, the people who are most marginalized, mm-hmm. are the people who are going to be most be hit by mm-hmm. inaccurate census data. Yeah, and another thing I we just talked about how it would affect elderly citizens briefly. Um, another thing it would affect children. I mean, and 
adults too, like the, the number of children and adults living in households who, um, who get welfare assistance through welfare programs. And it's, the census data tells the government whether or not some, a, a home um, or household qualifies for Medicaid or children's health insurance program. And counting the number of children who live in a neighborhood um, also helps um, public schools, right? Yes. Yeah. You know, that uh, we did a podcast on yeah. all about education. Yeah. So there's just so many things that the census touches. It's, it's really, you can really just go on forever about it. Another thing that the census affects is collecting data on income and employment. Right. And details about how a family earns money and how much they earn really gives a picture of the American economy. And if you think about if the census data is wrong, then, you know, those all those statistics that politicians use, like, oh, we have a 4% unemployment rate. Oh, it's down, you know, a percent or something like that. That's all inaccurate when the census is inaccurate. And another thing to think about is, I think we may have touched on this before, but how many people live in poverty? And if you don't count accurately the amount of people who are living in poverty in this country, we are physically unable to allocate the resources to give them um, the financial assistance they need granted by laws. And the census really determines how to distribute aid mm -hmm. to families, you know, for food and healthcare and um, jobs and rent, all these things. And a statistic about a person's employment status and occupation is used to identify neighborhoods that are having trouble, that need more right. resource allocation. And it helps planning wor workforce development, training, and business opportunities, and whether a business should move there if they have a lot of people that could use those jobs. So there's just so many things that it touches in terms of the economy. And I think it's something that could be so bipartisan that we can get yeah. behind in terms of getting people the resources needed by, and that are granted by law. And we should all want accurate information about yeah. our country. Honestly, the census kind of functions as a health indicator of our country, mm -hmm. you know? For the economy. economy. Exactly. Yeah. Just determining how much money people are making, where people are living. Oh, also you know? think about um, rent and yeah, property values. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, that's a huge thing. Exactly. You know, if, if a person qualifies for subsidized housing, like, I, I, there's yeah. just too many and things. Also, uh, like the poverty line mm -hmm. and determine that and I've read an article somewhere and I'll, we'll link it down below if I find it talking about how in the 2010 census data the poverty line was inaccurately calculated and mm -hmm. it was actually believed to be below what the census stated or the, or the information that lent itself so less people qualify exactly for in that respect so, so that's so dangerous and I, I think it's kind of inevitable that we do that again but and you always, you can't, I, I mean, it, it's, it's not that undercounting is intentional. It may very well be because mm -hmm. the government has to spend less money. But you, you think about how the Trump administration is so determined to cut costs, cut taxes and, um, in their departments. And, and if this, in the, yeah, and if this, the, we're talking about the 2020 census, and I guess, to, I don't think it seems far off, but I feel like to some people it's like, oh, it's a couple years away. But... What I actually learned was that this, the year 2017, the year 2018, mm -hmm. crucial. crucial years, because Absolutely this crucial. is the prepping and the planning. This is like, you know, it's not just, oh, 2020 comes, now we start. Mm -hmm. It's 
It's the 10 years in between each census that's really I mean, instrumental requires... in the planning, and, and they need funding every year. Yeah, I mean, the Bureau is estimated to need $17.8 billion to pull this off. That's an absurd amount of money. It's so much money mm. that's being allocated to this and needs to be done right, and you know, some are saying that's not even enough. So something else we also wanted to discuss about how the census data is taken is how the census identifies people, whether it's in terms of race, religion, gender, sexual orientation. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's really interesting to analyze how throughout time the census has identified certain groups of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, I read this article, and it's called it's by Vox, and it's called See Every Term the U.S. Census Has Used to Describe Black Americans. Yeah. Um, it, they have it dating back to 1820. Um, and, you know, first they called them slaves. It was either slaves or free-colored males and females. And then uh, they, added, they added some terms. And up until 1950 the race of someone was determined by the census taker. Yeah. And then post, in, from 1960 to 1990, people chose their own race. I, and yeah. then from 2000 on, there was an option to choose multiple races. So they mm-hmm. I, they recognized um, mu- um, multiracial people. So and I, think I think that's, that's interesting. And that's largely due to the rise of interracial couples and things mm-hmm. like that. Um, I think that's something that it, it wasn't until 1960 when they mm-hmm. let people identify themselves. Exactly. Yeah. I think that's absurd. Um, and I, I read an article that um, the census has lumped African Americans and Latinos and Asian Americans together mm-hmm. for so long. Um, and this provides wildly inaccurate data because we know that, you know, one's race and one's or one's religion or ethnic group you know it's largely did um there's a correlation between Mm -hmm. that and income and stuff like that and we've had a long history of discrimination and systemic racism so it's interesting i think it's important information to track that Mm -hmm. but uh, you know when they lump those all together there's just an inability to track that um and also something that i um was researching that was really interesting was that um, and this, the, I, I heard this from an article written in May of 2017 in the New York Times, and it said that the census won't collect LGBT data. Yeah, the Trump admission. Yeah, and they, they're refusing that. to do that. And that is such a problem. Um, and and that, that's really scary. Failing to collect good data on someone's sexual orientation or gender identity or, or anything like that, it allows policymakers and these elected officials like it allows them to discount these people it almost functions as a way to put these lgbt americans back in the closet which is something i learned from this article and uh, it also doesn't allow us to know how large Mm -hmm. the lgbt population is and how they're geographically distributed Mm -hmm. and there's so many instances of workplace discrimination and uh, and anything like that and you know or housing discrimination employment discrimination and and that is it's so crucial to know these numbers because it allows policymakers it allows legislators to understand that these people may need help and they're marginalized and they're mar- yeah exactly and without this data no one will know that i mean this doesn't have to do with the lgbtq community but 
in terms of women, that's how they determine the wage gap. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're correcting, if you're, you know, collecting data that's so incorrect, it really affects the, the statistics that policies are based on, that mm-hmm. people, that politicians base their campaigns and platforms off of. Yeah. And I think something about the census that I find interesting is it provides this snapshot of the American family. And without, with discounting sexual orientation and gender identity, it allows this image of this heterosexual, man-woman marriage, Mm -hmm. children, family to predominate. And it doesn't allow for us to understand that this image has so much evolved. Mm -hmm. You know, our image of what an American family looks like is so different than it was in the 1950s why does the census still show that up as the same? But I, I'd also kind of challenge that almost to say maybe your mine and your view is different, but a lot of other people's isn't. Yeah. So just keep that in mind. Yeah. Um. But this is this thought is kind of looking at the census more macroscopically and zooming yeah. out a little bit. But I feel like learning about the 2020 census and the problems with it and how so many of the data we use is inaccurate has made me a more critical thinker yeah. when I'm watching politicians, watching CNN, watching um, the news. And I, I think it's it, it's a good thing because I, I've learned to critically think and doubt what I'm taking in and really dissect what I yeah. know. And I think with the election and this whole attack on journalism and news, it, you can't just look at data mm-hmm. and accept it as fact because... You know, everyone has a bias. Even if they say they don't, everyone has a bias. And you look at the sense in it, it's census and it's this government organization. You you can look at it as fact, but it's not necessarily true. Is and that's something that we've kind of proved. And I think the census is so important in light of all these ident- this problem with identifying people is that we as a country are experiencing a demographic shift, and it's important to document that and understand that. Um, yeah, and just the fact that the majority of our population in 10, 20 years will not be, be white. white. Yeah, And it's important for data collection. It's also just important in the study of our country and how, how we're represented. Yeah. And also thinking about how we're electing a lot of politicians right now yeah. that are representing white interests. Yeah. But soon that will not be the majority. Yeah. But the problem is, is that the people with the money are, it's the donor all class. Comes down to money. Yeah. And I think that's a theme throughout all of our podcasts. Is yeah. It, you know, it's so sad. It comes down to money and power. So something we realized about the importance of the 2020 census is that if something is not counted, it's not seen or understood. And to many people, it doesn't even exist. And this is so concerning because politicians base policy based off of the data that the census collects. And if we don't have accurate data, politicians and our government don't understand the American people and what it needs and what the government needs to provide it. And 
such an understanding of the American public and the citizens is impossible without an accurate data collection from the census. Yeah, and as we discussed before, it, it's really, it can serve as an indicator of the health of our country and our democracy. And the fact of the matter is, the census is in danger. And just something to reference back to what we talked about before, if we don't have what Reynolds B. Sims said was one man, one vote, one person, one vote, then are we truly America? Are we the democracy that we say we are? Yeah, I don't think so.